Hi, my name is Lisa. I'm calling from Colorado. I'm a single mom and a teacher, and I have been contemplating how I'm going to get through my debt relief um, without burdening my children or dipping into anything I can leave them. My, I also have two college-age children who are on Pell Grants, and any relief that we can get has been incredibly helpful and will make a big difference in our lives on a day-to-day basis. The Department of Education estimates 45 million Americans have borrowed as much as $1.6 trillion in student loans from the federal government. And when we break down those numbers, it's clear who that financial burden has mostly fallen on. Many of you had to leave school because the financial strain was much too high. About a third of the borrowers have debt but no degree, and worst of both worlds, debt and no degree. The burden is especially heavy on black and Hispanic borrowers, who on average have less family wealth to pay for it. There's no, they don't own their homes to borrow against to be able to pay for college. That was President Joe Biden announcing his new student debt forgiveness plan last week. According to a recent bank rate survey, more than 60 percent of U.S. adults with student loans say they've had to delay major financial decisions because of their debt. Student debt is the second largest form of debt in the U.S. after home mortgages. After the break, we take a closer look at Biden's plan. We discuss what parts will benefit those who have taken on the most financial burden for a college degree. We also get into how less student debt could lead to more opportunities, particularly for people of color. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember, you can connect with us on Twitter. Find us at 1A. We're discussing President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. Joining us from the Washington Post is Danielle Douglas-Gabriel. She's a higher education reporter who covers college affordability and federal financial aid policy. Danielle, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. Also with us is Derek Hamilton, a professor of economics and urban policy at the New School. Derek, it's great to have you on. Thank you. Glad to be on the show. So let's start with the big question on borrowers' minds. Danielle, how soon will they receive this relief? Well, the Education Department is anticipating releasing an application in mid-October. The White House is encouraging people to try to apply by November 15th so that they could receive relief before the student loan payment pause ends at the end of the year. The Education Department right now is estimating between uh, four to six weeks to process those applications. Keep in mind there are about eight million people for whom the Education Department has their income on file, so those people will receive automatic relief. What can people who are eligible for this relief do in the meantime to prepare if they're going to have to go through that application process? The best thing that I've been telling a lot of our readers at The Post to do is sign up for the, at the Department of Education's website to get an instant notification when the application is ready. It should be a very short form from what the department has been telling uh, reporters and others, and it should not require a whole lot of gathering documents and such. I would also uh, remind folks that the Department of Education has records of every time you got a grant, every time you got a loan, every time your parents got a loan in their system. So they should be able to match up that that information pretty quickly. Now, the largest amount of relief will go to Pell Grant recipients. What is that grant and who is it for? Certainly. So the Pell Grant's been around since 1972. It was in, The inception of it was to create a form of financial aid that folks didn't have to repay, particularly for low- and middle-income Americans. 
Right now, the majority of people who receive Pell Grants have household incomes of $40,000 or less. Two-thirds of them tend to be African-American borrowers. Many of them also are also uh, Latinx borrowers. And so this grant has been a pretty substantial uh, financial benefit for millions of Americans. I think one estimate I saw said that about 80 million Americans have received a Pell Grant since its inception. Well, we heard from some Pell Grant recipients about how this relief will affect them. Hey, my name is Manny. Um, I'm calling in from Charlotte, North Carolina. My name is Landra, and I live in St. Petersburg, Florida. My name is Aubrey. I'm calling from Springfield, Missouri. And I come from a, a lower income background. My parents didn't make over, I believe, 30K when I was in high school. And when I got to college, you know, I, I didn't have the financial literacy to be able to make the decisions or to be able to foresee that the debt that I was incurring would follow me. So the forgiveness of these loans is a, is a huge weight off of my back. I was the first person in my family to get a college education. I was the daughter of a single mother who could not support me financially in my aspirations to go to school. I also was a single mother of two children when I went back um, to school and could not have achieved any of my education goals without receiving um, that help. I ended up becoming a nurse, and knowing that I might be able to get this forgiveness while it doesn't take care of everything relieves a huge anvil hanging over my head for my financial future. I came from an extremely poor family, and while after graduating college I did get a very good job, I'm not struggling to pay my bills or my loans. This just just takes a huge weight off of my shoulders. I can continue to pay my mom's rent. I can buy my mom a car that's not a beater. And I can continue to support my family in other ways. It's, it's uh, so much joy over here. Thank you. Now, according to the White House, Pell Grant recipients make up more than 60% of student loan borrowers. Derek, why did the White House give more to these recipients? Well, I wish they would have given more. I mean, I, I can uh, celebrate the fact that the precedent of the scale of the cancellation is dramatic and, like I said, unprecedented. But uh, frankly, I wish it would have would have been more. It's, it, it's going to do a lot of good, but there's still going to be a lot of people with an absorbent amount of debt that will they'll carry with them for a long period of their life course. So you've got Pell Grant recipients and then you've got the other 40 percent of student loan borrowers. How do they typically fare economically after graduating from college, Derek? And, you know, that depends if we break it down by demographics. So if we look at the returns to a college degree based on race, um, we know that if you're black and you have a college degree, you're better off than if you're black and don't have a college degree. But if you compare a black person with a college degree to a white person with a college degree, the returns to that degree are less than that of their white counterpart, which adds to this context of, of debt when we think about the racial implications uh, in terms of what you can receive from that college degree and what it costs you to get that college degree. According to the Department of Education, more than half of student loan borrowers are in, quote, exceptional financial need. And that means their families can contribute no funds at all to their college education. What does that tell you about the affordability of college right now? Right. And that, that is kind of what I've been alluding to, this larger context of structure. You know, the racial wealth gap doesn't just happen. There's a historical context of why it exists. And that has implications on who can go to college and who can afford to go to college. And we add that to a context where, you know, all of society tells young people, 
better yourself, invest in your education, uh, go to school so that you can get a better job. Um, but we we do that at a cost. We we impose this this uh, this debt that Danielle alluded to uh, when she talked about ability to pay over the over your over your work work career, uh, having to uh, contribute from your income, say four hundred dollars a month to a lender, and not be able to do other things like uh, afford your rent or invest in a down payment for a home. Another part of Biden's plan includes relief for parent plus loans. Danielle, how much relief could parents get for taking out loans to help their kid get through college? So what's interesting about the design of the plan is if a parent, while they were pursuing their own education, received a Pell Grant, they're still entitled to that $20,000. On average, there are probably many parents who are going to probably receive 10, but uh, they are all there that that extra kind of Pell premium still applies to parents as well as graduate uh, borrowers. And I think a lot of people I've heard from are really excited about that, in part because Pell is is really, in this instance, being used as a proxy to get at issues of um, racial disparities as well as income, income disparities that are very prevalent within the financial aid system. Now, some economists believe this relief could add to inflation. Derek, what do you think? Well, um, first off, the impact that uh, people are estimating on its on on inflation are are not that large. But also, I think they are misconstruing the point. The point that we care about inflation is purchasing power and purchasing power for whom. And if we think about the generation of young borrowers, well, well, let's think about their purchasing power. They came of age during the Great Recession, where there was limited job opportunities for them. And again, they went to school and accrued this large amount of debt. So if as a society, we're trying to offer them better pathways given conditions that were no fault of their own, I think inflation becomes a straw man argument to deflate from uh, us trying to address this in a structural way with public policy. Derek, some economists, including yourself, believe this forgiveness could help close the racial wealth gap. What exactly is the racial wealth gap and where does it stand today? Well, the racial wealth gap is dramatic. Uh, Throughout American history, it is typically the case that the median or typical black family has about 10 cents for every dollar held by the typical white family. And we know the way wealth is generated. It is wealth that begets more wealth. And we know historically black people have not had the same pathways to acquire wealth in the same ways that white people have had. And when they have been able to acquire wealth, it has always been politically vulnerable. There's the classic case of the Tulsa race massacre where we had, you know, a community of perhaps middle and working class black people and their their property was destroyed overnight because they didn't have the law enforcement protections that a typical citizen would have had. And that that's just one example. So um, if we think about student loan debt in the context of the racial wealth gap, well, then In in earnest, the most direct way to redress wealth inequality would be the asset dimension. But if we look at the debt dimension of wealth, well, we get into this scenario where you have people that are not able to acquire wealth because they're trapped in this scenario of always contributing a portion of their income towards debt relief. So it's basically a trap. It's almost an an indentured situation of borrowing. I'll give you one other statistic, and that is if we look at millennials, even across race, if we look at their home ownership rates compared to previous generations dating back over 100 years, 
all the way to the greatest generation that was coming out of the Great Depression when they became young adults, the home ownership rate for millennials is as low as it has been dating back 100 years. And what's more, the racial disparity in home ownership amongst millennials, so the black compared to white race rate, is as high as it's ever been since we've been recording home ownership for similar generations at a point in their adulthood. So it would be naive for us to not recognize that student loan has something to do with that. So just to be clear, debt is critical. Um, and student loan debt is, is a just issue in and of its own self. But I don't want to exaggerate the impact it's going to have on the racial wealth gap because assets are the key dimension of that metric. Danielle, Black borrowers are also the most likely to pay a disproportionate amount in student loan interest. They also have one of the lowest home ownership rates in, in the U.S., as we heard from Derek, and that's according to a report from the Education Data Initiative. How does student debt hurt borrowers after graduation? So there are a couple ways. Oftentimes, one of the big impacts we've seen is something called interest capitalization. This is what occurs when you move in and out of different payment plans or move in and out of forbearance or deferment of your loan payments. A lot of times, African-American borrowers in particular have struggled uh, in repaying their loans when they first come out of college because they're not earning enough to afford it. They may not know of repayment plans that could help them afford their monthly payments like those that are tied to your income. And so they will go into deferment. And after they come out of deferment, the interest that's accrued on the debt in the meantime is added to the principal. And then you're paying interest on top of interest. Uh, and it becomes extremely expensive to do that. You can see people who borrowed maybe $20,000 end up still paying back 30000 as a result of these sorts of interest capitalization events. So that's a part of it. Also, when they de people default on their loans. And what's fascinating, I think what's important to note as to why the president picked 10000 is that a lot of Federal Reserve data was showing that the borrowers who were having the hardest times tended to be low-balance borrowers, people who had 10000 or, $10, or less in debt. And the reason why is many had dropped out of college before they were able to complete their degree, never earning the credential that would allow them to repay their loans. And as a result, struggled and ended up in delinquency or default. Economist William Spriggs of Howard University and AFL-CIO tweeted, quote, missing in the conversation on student debt forgiveness, about half the 27.5 million U.S. households with student debt are people who did not finish college. This isn't about helping the privileged, end quote. And Danielle, how will this relief help those students who didn't finish college, people like Emily? Well, I think that's an important part. Oftentimes, a lot of research has shown a lot of people who didn't finish college were low income, probably uh, qualified for Pell or received Pell and still weren't able to complete their degree because they couldn't really afford to. And oftentimes it's it's a matter of uh, work responsibilities, family responsibilities, pulling at their ability to stay focused on their degree and not having the financial support to help with things like emergency that require them to spend money that they don't have, get jobs and not focus on their education. So this kind of relief uh, could likely send the majority of the benefits to those, pop to those populations in particular. I think the White House put out uh, estimates saying that about 90% of the people who would be helped are earning under 75000 They get in, didn't get into specifics as to how much of that 75000 uh, was actually, 90% was at the lowest end of the income distribution. But given what we know about Pell Grants and given what we know about Pell borrowers and their 
uh, the, the likelihood that they're more likely to borrow more, then it's, it's highly probable that we might see a great bit of the benefit going to the, the neediest, the most vulnerable borrowers in that population. Derek, how does this dynamic play out demographically when we look at people who have student debt but were unable to complete their college degree? Yeah, we know that Black people are less likely to go to college than white people, largely because of that racial wealth gap that we have been describing. And then when they do go to college, they acquire higher levels of debt at every level of college from BA to not finishing to graduate school compared to their white counterpart. And what's more, they're less likely to finish college than white students. And here's the number one reason, finances. And there's the irony. The irony is that uh, the number one reason that impedes them from going to college is finance. And the number one reason they won't finish is finance. And what becomes even more pernicious is if they don't finish and they're saddled with that albatross of student debt. The Latino-focused education consultant group Excellencia in Education published a report that projects about half of all Latino student loan debt will be forgiven through Biden's plan. Roughly 72% of Latino students take out loans to attend college. Derek, when you hear stats like this, how hopeful are you that this plan will help households across all income levels, non-white households specifically? You know, I'm hoping that this is a windfall for a new direction in, in public policy where we center people. We center people first and foremost and making sure that they have the necessary resources so that they can thrive. So that statistic is very hopeful. But, you know, I want to put it in the context that we know that four years after graduation, the typical black person has about $53,000 in debt. So th- this is, as one of the callers called in, a substantial drop in the bucket, but a drop in the bucket nonetheless. That's Derek Hamilton. He's a professor of economics and urban policy at the New School. Derek, thanks for being with us. Thank you. What an honor to be on your show. And Danielle, that worth of information is so valuable. Up next, we'll talk about the next generation of college students and how they can get ahead of student loan debt. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Let's get back to the conversation with this message from one of you. This is Eric in Salt Lake City. I'm feeling both grateful and guilty for student loan forgiveness. I'm a recent graduate and Pell Grant recipient, but I'm also the fifth of six kids, and none of my siblings are getting any of this money. Uh, I took out student loans in combination with scholarships and working part-time to get through college, uh, but I have siblings who decided not to go to college and another sibling who worked two jobs Uh, so that he wouldn't have to take out student loans. So getting a $20,000 gift from the government is great. Uh, It's sad that my siblings don't benefit from this. So how can high school students pursuing higher education avoid taking out more debt than they have to? Yanali Espinal is an expert in personal finance. She's the director of educational outreach for NextGen Personal Finance. That's a nonprofit that provides access to financial education in schools. Yanali, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited for this conversation. And still with us is Danielle Douglas-Gabriel, education and economics reporter at The Washington Post. So, Yanelli, how does your work in personal finance fit into the student debt conversation? Yeah, so we actually are a national nonprofit organization that offers free curriculum and free teacher training to high school teachers as well as middle school teachers. And one of the units that we actually create lesson plans, assessments, activities, games, and homework assignments um, 
is actually called paying for college. And we strongly believe that within a personal finance course, a semester course that it should be guaranteed to every single student in high school. That's, our, that's one of the beliefs and around our mission as a nonprofit. Um, we believe that that course really needs to include both paying for college and what that looks like and entails, as well as alternatives to four-year college. Danielle, students need to know how to repay their loans, but how many colleges and high schools require personal finance education? Not many, to my knowledge. Um, We have seen an increase in a couple of schools starting to uh, require that. But many experts I've spoken to say that this should start at the high school level more than at college, because when you're heading to college, you're about to sign that promissory note if you're borrowing. But if you're in high school, you still have time to make a decision as to what's the best financial investment for you. Yanelli, when is the best, best time for students to start learning about personal finance if they want to attend college? Yeah, actually, so to the previous question, there are actually 15 states that currently have uh, guaranteed access to every student at the high school level that they will receive a full semester course in personal finance with the latest states being Michigan and Florida. Um, And and this is a growing movement across the country, which is super exciting to be seeing this movement happening right now. And then this conversation around student loans kind of fitting right into that movement. Um, and, and, And to your question about really thinking about when it should happen, a lot of the research actually shows right now that there's something called just-in-time education, which means that when you go to teach students what they need to know about a particular topic, you should be teaching it at the time where it is just in time for them to actually apply the learning and use it right away. So that means that for paying for college, if you're going to teach me about the FAFSA, right, if you're going to teach me about this free application for financial aid, I need to learn it right when I'm going to do it, which is going to be junior year of high school that students are actually filling out that FAFSA. So don't teach it in middle school and ninth grade in high school because by the time I turn 17 and I need to use it, it's kind of, you know, tucked away in the back of my brain and I've I've forgotten about it. So just-in-time education means that it's ideal for students to get personal finance content, including paying for college, junior and senior year of high school. You wrote an op-ed last October for Latino Rebels on the hurdles for Latinos who want to go to college. And you specifically noted the decline in college enrollment among Latinos that happened during the pandemic. According to the National Student Clearinghouse Research Center, enrollment for community colleges dropped by nearly 14% last year. And those schools typically have a large Latino student population per that report. Is that expensiveness factor of college leading to lower enrollment for Latinos specifically? Absolutely. Um, you know, not only is it that the fact that so many uh, Latinx students who go to college are actually going to be low income or first generation because their parents are, you know, immigrants. A lot of it is also the fact that the families have a more financial plight during the economic downturn, right, of the pandemic. So that means that if I am, you know, 17, 18 at home and about to go to college, but now my family has lost our main source of income or majority of our income, I am going to have to step up and actually begin working to help my family. And that, and that's something that we saw, you know, working with teachers uh, through our work at Next Gen Personal Finance is so many teachers were going onto our Facebook group and coming onto social media to say, my students aren't coming to class anymore. Um, and many of them are choosing not to go to college because they have to work full time to support the families because so many of the, you know, the, the, the work that was being done by their families, immigrant workers was, you know, kind of lost during the pandemic. So most of that income wasn't available. And a lot of teenagers actually had to step up to the plate and work rather than actually being able to go to community college or or go to a four-year college the way they may have intended to before the pandemic occurred. Yanelli, what are the most common mistakes you see students and families make as they apply for financial aid? 
Yeah, you know, this is such a great uh, a question. And I think that the word predatory can be a little bit inflammatory. Some people will say it's not predatory because of the fact that, you know, you don't have to, you're not forced to, to go to college. You can choose to go or not to go. But the reality is, is that when we look at why people use the word predatory, it's because of the average um, inflation for tuition and fees at colleges and universities. So the average tuition and fees at private national universities jumped 154% from 2020 to, from 2000 to 2020. So over a 20-year period of time. And out-of-state tuition and fees at public national universities have risen 181%. And then with in-state, which is very common for most low-income families and students, in-state tuition and fees at public national universities have grown the most, increasing 221%. So when we look at these inflation rates, when we look at how much the increase has happened on tuition and fees, we have to ask ourselves, what? Like, let's set aside the fact that we're talking about paying for college. What is the decision-making process whenever you're going to buy anything that has grown 200% in the price point. When we look at anything out in the market that you're going to buy, what do you do? You have to do a cost-benefit analysis, and you have to understand that one of the number one priorities for how to make this decision is the financial aspect of that decision. And we should say since 1980, the average price of tuition fees and room and board for an undergraduate degree increased 169%, according to a recent report from the Georgetown University Center on Education and the Workforce. Yanelli, how have you seen personal finance education change a student's mind about whether they go to college? Yeah, you know, this is such a great question because I actually have seen students light up by one example. We have a game um, at the NGPF website, which is NGPF.org. There's an arcade section. And in there, one of the games is called Payback. We do an annual scholarship contest around that game because it's such an eye opener. Um, I remember I went to the Bronx to do a student workshop with students um, at a business high school in the Bronx. And the students were running to go to the computer lab and to go to the main office after our workshop was done because they wanted to keep playing the game payback because it was just such a hooking game. And what it does is basically hook students with this idea of, hey, you are applying to college. You're going to go, you're going to get accepted to a college. You're going to go there. And you're essentially doing a simulation, a, a game where you're doing, you're choosing your own adventure. And every next question that comes up on the screen, you have to make a choice. And these choices are all rooted in the everyday money making decisions that you make as a college student. For example, are you going to rent your textbooks or are you going to buy them brand new? Are you going to get a used laptop? Are you going to buy a brand new fancy laptop, name brand laptop, instead of getting maybe a, a lesser known brand laptop and saving money? Are you going to get your own dorm and have a single or are you going to have a suite where you can save a bit of money but you'll have to live with three or four other people right these constant like choices that are involved in the college attending process are things that most teenagers have never had to consider because they did not experience college yet. So by putting them in front of a simulation, a game-based experience where they go through and make these decisions as if they were real, it really helps to prepare them and and actually gives them the skill of deciphering the decisions that they need to make, like seeing a financial aid award letter, seeing the packages that they get and deciphering between which ones here are loans that I'm responsible for paying back versus aid, like aid that's like free, like scholarships and grants that I won't have to pay back. So, I mean, right now, I think that the most powerful way to help the next generation to not repeat this cycle and have another student loan debt crisis is to make sure that they're getting guaranteed access to information about how to pay for college and what other alternatives to four-year college are. And the perfect place to put that is in a guaranteed personal finance course. As, as this continues to unfold and 
ongoing conversations continue around the affordability of college and student debt. Yanelli, what are the big questions you hope get answered? Yeah, you know, I think that one of the biggest questions we have, especially as an education nonprofit, our expertise is focusing on education and what the impact on students will be in the context of a a public school, right? And so I think that right now we're doing the best we can to promote this movement of advocating for more financial education before students turn 18 and before they cross the graduation stage. But one of the big things that, you know, we can't deny is that there are systemic barriers. And so we're looking to see what legislation or regulation is going to come from this in terms of disclosures, because that is something that we believe that is needed. We should require colleges to provide standardized data um, because they still provide a lot of different formats um, on those financial aid award letters that make it difficult and confusing for folks to compare and make the best decision about what college to attend. That's Yanelli Espinal. She's the Director of Educational Outreach at NextGen Personal Finance. It provides access to personal financial education. Also with us, Danielle Douglas-Gabriel, a reporter with The Washington Post who covers higher education and the economy. Yanelli, Danielle, thanks to both of you. Today's producer was Sophia Alvarez-Boyd. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk more soon. This is 1A.